Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm one of your hosts, Katie Halper. I'm the second host, Aaron Maté. Hey, everybody. Thank you for being with us. Remember, our website, as always, is usefulidiotspodcast.com. Go there, support the show, and get bonus content. Indeed. And uh, Aaron, you don't go to the movies or do anything for enjoyment, right? You're just on Twitter and also reading documents and following the news? Pretty much, yeah. All right, cool. Well, I've been trying to watch some of the um, Oscar-nominated films, by the way. Mm-hmm. I've, I've enjoyed some of them. So uh, definitely recommend Killers of the Flower Moon. Also, I uh, just saw this is not Best Picture, but it did get some nominations. I really like May December with Julian Moore and Natalie Portman about a May December relationship. I don't want to give too much away, but it's about a much older woman and a much younger man. And it's based on one of uh, those true stories from the 90s where uh, a much older woman got together with a much younger man. Also saw Maestro, Schnozgate of Schnozgate fame, Nosegate mm-hmm. fame. Uh, Bradley Cooper did a great job in it. I got to say, though, the nose was not worth it for me because the guy spent hours getting into prosthetic makeup, which made sense, I think, for when he played the older Leonard Bernstein character. But when he was playing Leonard Bernstein young, honestly, the Bradley Cooper nose would have just worked. Well, there you go, everybody. Uh, It's your one-stop shop for movie reviews of films that came out last year. There you go. Yeah. And it's not only other shows offer you discussions on this, but nowhere else will you get a monologue on this where (laughs) one of the hosts has seen these movies. That's how bold we are. That's how experimental avant-garde we are. Yeah, I have nothing to offer. I, I mean, I didn't know. I, I know that the Scorsese movie is like how it's like three. Isn't it over three hours long? It's I like think so. But honestly, you're never. It flew by. I was never bored in it. Yeah, wow. I did. The only problem with those movies is you got to go to the. I actually not to be TMI, but I have to go to the bathroom during them. Sure. I mean, that's over three hours. I mean, yeah. yeah. Same with Oppenheimer. So I think they should actually build in uh, breaks like they do with intermissions. I would go to that protest. I would. I wouldn't go to one of these movies. Because right. I just can't sit through a movie right now, but I would go to the protest for bathroom breaks during movies. Absolutely. Your your bathroom break ally. Actually, your 100%. allyship there is more moving than it would be if you went to the movies because <laughs> this is purely altruistic solidarity. It really There's is. No skin in the game. A hundred percent. Hundred percent. Count me in. Count. So Aaron's very passionate about politics, not about culture, but about a couple of other things, which include. Drinking alcohol on planes, very mm-hmm. much against it. Mm-hmm. He's a pro. He's a an airline prohibitionist. Yeah, and he is a bathroom break ally. Yes, yes. And culture wise, I, it's not like I don't care about culture. I'm very passionate about culture from like the 1980s, 1990s. Count me in. I, I'm a, I'm your one stop shop for any cultural um, discussion there. But after you know, ever since I got really political, no, yeah, kind of checked out. I think, Aaron, though, you owe it to the people who you care about. Here's a little Mm -hmm. serious thing, ready? I was actually talking about this with a friend. Sometimes, especially since October 7th, you know, we've been focused a lot on Palestine. And there was so much horror there and so much suffering there. And I actually think that I'm trying to make myself not take breaks because I we deal with it every week on this show and I deal with it every week on the Katie Helper show and I know you deal with it at uh, the gray zone, but trying to do something to take my mind off it just for like an hour. Let's say I'll watch a show, uh, not just out of like, I hate this term, self-care, but actually 
so that I can be more effective in doing the stuff I do do you, because like I do need breaks or else I feel like I would go crazy. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's not just yeah. about like myself. It's actually because if I want to be able to, you know, constantly read about the horrors that are happening there, I feel like I just, I do need some, uh, have, uh, some hobbies or else it would just drive me crazy and I wouldn't be able to like host the shows. Effectively. Yeah. You know, there was a big debate online recently on Twitter because somebody posted about how leftists should exercise every single day. And this led to a lot of different responses. People got really passionate about this topic. Should leftists exercise or not? But I just took that as, you know, a, 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 an endorsement of the notion that people should have other pursuits and things yeah. that that occupy their minds in different ways. And Norman Ficklestein talks about how one of his heroes, I believe it was W.E.B. Du Bois, but maybe uh, or um, someone like that, who would uh, make sure that they, after a long day of political writing, they would read a novel. Mm, right. You know, we all handle this awful world in different ways, and, yeah. and there's no magic formula. Working out is great because it also raises your endorphins. It's good for you know what Norman Finkelstein does, and I'm not I'm not revealing any secrets here. He mentions this. He goes for a walk, I believe, every day on he Coney does. Island. Okay, yeah, he does on Coney Island. Yes. He so he takes his mental his uh, physical health seriously, although he doesn't go to a doctor. Do you know this? Also, this was he said this on my show. Norman, if you're watching, I'm urging you once again, just go for a yearly checkup. We care about you. Uh, I say I say Norman, live your life. He's he's in great health. He is in great health. Uh, and uh, you study it's all roads lead to Finkelstein. All right, let's get to our four basic food groups. I have Democrats suck. And for that, we're going to turn to President Biden talking about the threat of an Israeli assault on Rafah, which has pretty much already begun because as Americans were watching the Super Bowl, Israel bombed Rafah, where more than a million people have fled to take shelter from the Israeli assaults elsewhere and the Gaza Strip. And now Israel is threatening to launch a brand new ground assault on what was deemed the last safe area in Gaza, which itself was not even true because it wasn't even safe. But here is President Biden talking about this very possibility. As I said yesterday, our military operation in Rafah, the major military operation in Rafah, should not proceed without a credible plan, a credible plan for ensuring the safety and support more than 1 million people sheltering there. So that's Biden. And notice he makes a classic Biden slip. He first says our military operation in Gaza. Then he corrects himself to say the major military operation in Gaza. But as is the case with Biden, his flub is actually the truth because this is a joint production with Israel. Uh, The U.S. sponsors every single atrocity that Israel commits. It arms it. And Biden administration officials, despite Biden saying that, you know, we oppose any uh, Israeli ground assault on on Rafah unless there's a credible plan to protect the civilians there and let them evacuate. They're already making clear that even that is not true. Here is White House spokesperson John Kirby. And on Rafah, does the has the president ever threatened to strip military assistance from Israel if they move ahead with a Rafah operation that does not take into consequence uh, what happens with civilians? We're going to continue to support Israel. They have a right to defend themselves against Hamas, and we're going to continue to make sure they have the tools and the capabilities to do that. So that's John Kirby saying that Israel actually has a green light no matter what Biden says. And here's Jake Sullivan pretty much saying the same thing. 
Sure. I just want to ask you then about Israel, which is my which is my primary question here, which is that the White House has said it would like to have from Israel a credible plan in terms of what it's going to do in Rafa to avoid civilian casualties there. What does the White House believe that plan needs to look like, and what is the consequence for Israel if it doesn't meet that desire of the United States? So I'm not going to lay out all of the details standing here at the podium because those are intensive conversations we're having with the Israeli government right now in detail, but broadly speaking. Oh, okay. There are two details to share. <laughs> exactly. Right. Thanks. I'm exactly. sure that's what your concern is. You don't want to bore us with the answer to deta <laughs> details of it. You're being totally transparent. You just, yeah. Okay. And just to make sure that Israel knows it has a full green light, uh, this is what some U.S. officials leaked to Politico. The Biden administration won't punish Israel for a Rafah military operation that doesn't protect civilians. Three U.S. officials told us no reprimand plans are in the works, meaning Israeli forces could harm civilians in the city with no American consequences. So just to make sure it's not totally obvious, that the Biden administration is lying through its teeth when it says that it's opposed to a Israeli ground assault on Rafah without protecting civilians. Three U.S. officials make it abundantly clear. I think that Biden should cut a campaign ad actually over him, over his saying uh, in the first clip that you showed, saying that this is our operation because the Biden campaign is facing a lot of trouble because people say he's not with it, right? That report yeah. just came out that he's like kind of like a kindly old grandfather mm -hmm. and that he can't be charged with anything in terms of doc talk. Uh, because he didn't have the wherewithal to know what the hell he was doing. I say you release this video, you make it a campaign ad, and then lo and behold, the people realize, oh, no, he knows exactly what he's doing with this joint operation. He does understand. <laughs> That's true. That is an example of him telling the truth yeah. and laying plain what his policy is. So he is on top of things for sure. Right. He's yeah. aware of what his policies are. Yeah. yeah. Which in this case entails more mass murder of a defenseless civilian population. Yeah. It was really, I don't know if you saw that image, but there was a child hanging from a wall with her legs shredded. Of course I saw that, yeah. And yeah. that that is what John Kirby is calling Israel's right to self-defense. I don't believe in an afterlife, but I wish I did because these people deserve to burn in hell. Sorry, it's not, not very funny, but it's it's what I believe. So just saying it, just putting it out there. Well, there's more candidates, right, for uh, hell, uh, as we're going to see now in Republican Suck. There we go. So for Republican Suck, I have a video, a really, really fun, enjoyable video showing former U.S. Secretary of State and former CIA Director Mike Pompeo dancing with Israeli soldiers. So let's take a look. Along. And that video comes from Pompeo and his wife visiting a rejuvenation center where soldiers reportedly go after returning from Gaza. And it looks like a great time. This follows uh, former Vice President Mike Pence visiting Israel and uh, autographing some bombs, some U.S. Oh, yeah, bombs that were said to be dropped on Gaza. Pompeo looks like he's having a really fun time, though. He does, yeah. Looks like he's having the time of his life. Like, he's never felt such joy dancing with a bunch of uh, genocidal soldiers uh, who are in the midst of 
you know, taking part in a mass murder operation against a civilian population. I mean, you can see it really brings out the life in him. It does. And we were actually talking at the beginning of the show, Aaron, about self-care. And it's clear that Pompeo is engaging in self-care because he really enjoys that dancing. It's I'm sure it's a recreational activity he likes. Also, that can get up the endorphins if you do it enough to get in an aerobic challenge. So we should all be more like Pompeo, guys. <laughs> okay, for isn't that weird, let's turn to the dating field. It was just Valentine's Day, but one man is not having very much luck right now on the market uh, because he is a supporter of Israel. And he's finding that other people on dating apps do not <laughs> want to date someone who's a fanatic supporter of Israel. So his name is Stephen Pollard. And this is so what you're saying writes. they're people who are for whom genocide is not their kink. That's exactly right. His name is Stephen Pollard. And this is what he writes. I rarely do personal on here, but I've noticed a phenomenon which mixes personal and political. I'm divorced. And on a couple of dating sites, I noticed a few weeks after October 7th that some profiles started to show the Palestinian flag. I didn't think much of it, but something has happened more recently. It's not yet the majority, but many profiles I see now say no Zionists. It is now, it seems, a normal thing for people to declare publicly that they refuse to consider dating a Jew, which is, of course, what no Zionist means. <laughs> this is where we are now. These are dark times. Signed, Stephen Pollard. Can we zoom in on, on his profile, on his uh, Twitter profile picture? What's going on there? You know, maybe we could actually help Stephen because a couple things. One is that, of course, no Zionist doesn't mean no Jews because more the likelihood of finding uh, – if you throw a rock at Zionists, you're going to hit a Christian Zionist, not a Jewish Zionist in the United States, first of all. That's <laughs> true. But maybe he's not having luck for other reasons. Like if I saw this profile pic on a dating app, I'd be like, this guy takes himself too seriously. That's not a real photo. It's an AI thing where he's trying to look like a painting. Okay, that's him. I'd also suggest, Steve, um, horizontal stripes aren't for I, I tend to not be flattering. So maybe another thing you could do is maybe vertical stripes instead of horizontal stripes. And of course, mainly, I mean, I think the main thing is, have you considered not supporting a genocidal state? Well, there's that too, right. You know. But that may be so part of his identity. Well, you know, you got to choose in life, you know, do you want to support your genocidal state or do you want to find love? Right. You know? Can we see that again? One of his images, he kind of has a, an Alfred Hitchcock look to him. Hmm. So I was hmm. thinking maybe his profile could say something like um, Alfred Hitchcock looking for his Zionist Grace Kelly. <laughs> it's pretty good. It's good, That's right? pretty good. That might work. That you might could work. use it, Steve. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So for Isn't That Terrible, we have a video from friend of the show, someone who has mentioned me by name in his tweets, not to brag, the actor Michael Rappaport. Let's hear what he had to say about Rafa. Don't go into Rafa, Rafa this, Rafa that, genocide this, genocide that. They rescued IDF, actual freedom fighters, rescued two hostages from Rafa, the same place the squad, AOC, Corey Bush, Ilion, fucking Omar, and the other one, whatever her name is, and Cadaver Joe Biden, all of them and all of fucking Twitter. All right, I'll give him that. Cadaver Joe Biden's kind of a good line. All of the fucking Hamas fangirls and boys were like, don't go into Rafa. The two hostages were rescued from Rafa. 
Are you happy about that, AOC? The rest of you, you didn't want hostages to be rescued. You should be going, that's great. God bless those hostages. People don't want, it's like, this is like, this isn't the fucking Super Bowl. Two hostages were rescued in a civilian building. In a civilian building, Hamas doesn't give a fuck about the Palestinian people. Hamas doesn't give a fuck about the people of Gaza. Hamas gives no shits about the people of Gaza. They give nothing. They give a fuck about, and neither do you motherfuckers. You don't give a fuck about the people of Gaza. You just want to be right and you want Israel to be wrong. Fuck you. Fuck you. I have some words to say to Michael Rappaport. You don't give a shit about the hostages. You just want Israel to be right and Palestinians to not just be wrong, but dead. And not only do you want Palestinians to be dead, you want Israelis to be dead because you kept pointing to two hostages that they freed. Okay. How many more hostages were freed when there were negotiations? A lot more. And Israel killed three hostages, three Israeli hostages. The people you care about, Michael, apparently. They were shot by IDF, the brave IDF that you are praising right now. Shot three of their own, three hostages who are speaking Hebrew. So if you cared about the hostages, which you don't, because you don't give a shit about hostages and fuck you and all the stuff that you said to the squad, you would be demanding negotiations and you'd be up in arms about the fact that Israel is sacrificing its own. We know you don't care about Palestinians. Obviously, you're a racist who sees them as subhuman. But just do the one thing you're supposed to be good at. So that's my terrible. You know, when I heard him uh, start speaking, I thought he was doing like his voice, he was doing like a bit, like he was impersonating somebody, like a really annoying person, because he just sounds so, it sounds like he's doing a voice, but that's actually his yeah. his, his, his real voice. Uh, would he support Palestinians killing 60 Israeli civilians if they could rescue a few of their hostages in, in Israeli prisons because Never. that's at least how many Palestinians were killed when Israel bombed Rafah. And by the way, I don't even buy Israel's story Me here that, th that this operation led to rescues. I'd like to see some real proof of that. Everything Israel says should be assumed to be a blatant lie, exactly. given how many times they've lied, unless they can show absolute concrete proof to validate their claims. And in the absence yeah. of that, I'm just not going to believe what they're saying. I don't believe that um, this operation in which they slaughtered, you know, dozens of Palestinian civilians led to the rescue of two hostages. It, it, it doesn't make sense to me. And there's no reason to believe anything they say. Right. Yeah. You, Israel is lying when it's moving its mouth, basically, when it opens its mouth. That's when you know that they're lying. They posted this video, which allegedly showed tents that they had set up for Palestinian refugees. It turns out that was an eye stock photo of Moldova showing tents for Ukrainian refugees. That's right. That is and they correct. had to delete that. They did. How many times will Israel lie before people acknowledge that, yes, by default, you have to assume that Israel's lying until uh, given evidence, until proven otherwise, everything Israel says. Netanyahu said on one of the Sunday morning news shows that the ratio of civilians to Hamas fighters killed was one to one just lies through his teeth without any hesitation. Even Israel's b biggest supporters don't believe that. They just say it's worth it. But Netanyahu has to say it because he's speaking to an American audience. Right. Which he knows actually cares about, you know, having their weapons used to slaughter civilians. So he has to lie through his teeth. 
And he has people like Michael, Michael Rappaport to, uh, you know, carry water for him. Yeah. But again, tough times for Israel when Michael Rappaport's the best you can do. I know. Well, Aaron, please don't uh, invisibilize um, Noah Tishby and Amy Schumer and mm. the very brave Deborah Messing. <laughs> Sorry. And that yes. English guy whose name no one knows who wrote uh, the screenplay for Borat. Borat 2. Borat 2. Borat 2? Oh, it was Borat 2. Yeah. Borat. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Oh, and Brett Gelman. I'm sorry, Brett Gelman. And Brett Gelman. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's more erasure. Yeah. Yes. Aaron, you just engaged in jaddy erasure. He identifies as a jaddy. Do you know what a jaddy is? I don't. A Jewish daddy. Okay. Not father, but like sexy, as in sexy. I know. I know. I should have offered a trigger warning for that. Please. Yes. Yes. All right. Those are your four basic food groups. All right. For this week's guest, we are very happy to be joined by Dr. Mads Gilbert. He is a physician from Norway who has spent decades working inside hospitals in Gaza, including during multiple Israeli assaults. He tried to get into Gaza during this most recent assault, uh, right after it began, uh, trying to enter through Egypt, but he wasn't able to. But this is someone who's put his life on the line to save the lives of Palestinians. And we're going to speak to him today about Israel's assault on Gaza, and its assault especially on Gaza's medical system. And this week, we are keeping the interview totally unpaywalled so everyone can access it. But of course, as always, paid subscribers do get Thursday Throwdown, your midweek dose of media madness, where we try to laugh instead of cry at the media and at the news. Uh, This week, we break down a really embarrassing moment of AOC talking about Joe Biden. So we think you'll really enjoy it. All right, let's go to Dr. Mads Gilbert. Dr. Mads Gilbert, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. As we're recording this, there is a new crisis unfolding at the Nasser Medical Complex in Gaza's Khan Yunus, where hundreds of people uh, are fleeing the hospital after Israel has warned of a new attack the latest Israeli attack on a hospital facility in Gaza. What is your understanding of what's happening there? Well, obviously, the uh, Israeli occupation forces are repeating their attacks on hospitals, as they've been doing throughout the last four months uh, on the hospitals in the north of Gaza. Um, This is a a, a systematic tactique they have, uh, some sort of uh, modus operandi, where they attack the hospitals, they deny them, uh, electricity, fuel, supplies, water, and food. They uh, shoot and kill staff. They shoot and kill patients. And finally, they they force uh, the people inside to evacuate. You have to understand that the hospitals in Gaza have been the last resort for, for hundreds of thousands of forcefully displaced Palestinians who had no other refuge than to go to their hospitals. And um, uh, it is quite striking uh, how systematically they have been attacking hospitals. We have got these reports from UN OCHA every second day, uh, and, and, and the graphs are very, very clear. Uh, day by day, they have been dismantling or choking or destroying or attacking uh, more and more hospitals. And I think we're left now with four working in the south and four in the north out of 36 hospitals. I know healthcare in Gaza pretty well. I've been working with the healthcare in Gaza for the last uh, 25 years, and it was a fairly well-functioning European-like healthcare system. 
of course, very much um, obstructed by the 16 years of siege. Uh, my last visit there was in June last summer. Uh, and, um, you know, they work hard to develop it, to develop it and to have a high standard evidence-based medicine. Now it's all shattered and there are uh, 400 plus healthcare workers killed. There are hundreds in detention uh, who are being tortured. And we don't know really the number of patients who have either been directly killed or who have died because the medical uh, provisions were not uh, up to their needs because of the siege and the, the attacks on the hospitals. What's going on in um, the Nasser medical complex now is extremely serious. They have been threatening uh, the staff to leave the hospital for a few days. They've been shooting at uh, the hospital. They have sniped people through the windows and uh, almost killed one of the surgeons. Uh, what happened yesterday, I believe it was, uh, was maybe the most divulging and, and sickening thing when they used this Palestinian prisoner dressed up in a COVID gear uh, with a yellow band on his uh, uh, head and then handcuffed or at least, uh, you know, tied up to walk into the yard and to talk to the people and tell them to leave the hospital. And then when he got back to his captures, they executed him in cold blood. Uh, so what we have seen the last 24 hours is actually that people are, are scared. Of course, they have all reasons to be scared and they're trying to leave yet another time. And we've seen these very, very painful videos of, of both displaced people and patients uh, who are able to either walk or to be taken out on a stretcher, leaving uh, Nasser Hospital to go where, to go where, to have what kind of security. Um, and I got a message this morning from one of the leaders, Minister of Health, saying that they had got the message from WHO, actually from the United Nations, as a, an in-between, a messenger that uh, the Israeli occupation forces were planning to enter uh, Nasser now, and they just had to get out. And this is, of course, against absolutely every international law aimed at protecting uh, civilian hospitals and, uh, and the staff. And um, this is unprecedented. But I'd like to add that for us who have been working with the Palestinians and their healthcare for many, many years, it's not a new feature. The Israelis have always been attacking healthcare. In the last uh, report from um, WHO last year, uh, Access to Health, they reported, was it 600 attacks on healthcare for the last two years? And, and during this attack on Gaza, there has been hundreds and hundreds of attacks. Uh, we've seen the attacks in the West Bank where they even uh, dress up as, um, as doctors and patients and kill patients in their beds um, while sleeping. So this is unprecedented. I think Israel is the only nation on earth who has as part of their military strategy to attack, to uh, kill, and to dismantle civilian hospitals. That itself should be a huge uproar in, in the West, but you know, they're sitting there twinning their, their thumbs and doing nothing. Some of the doctors who have been killed by Israel in this assault were friends of yours. Yeah. Can you tell us about them? Um, it's actually quite painful uh, because uh, I don't know any 
uh, medical workers uh, globally, and I've been working a lot in the global south, and and I have lots of friends, and and I have a very high esteem for people who choose uh, to spend their lives in 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 caring work, and not only thinking about how much money to fill their pockets with, but to really uh, go out of their ways, be it nurses or doctors, medical students or dentists or pharmacists, to be servants of the people. But I know of no healthcare workers so dedicated and so willing to sacrifice as the Palestinian healthcare workers in particular in Gaza. So one of them was Maisara Al-Rayas, who was my medical student. I've been teaching as a guest visiting professor at the Al-Azhar University for many years. I teach emergency medicine and, um, and resuscitative medicine, and he was uh, an excellent student very active. He was the head of the IFMSA, which is the International Federation of Medical Students Association, which is a large global network. And that was actually a very important um, social construction in Gaza, because uh, that would sort of glue together the medical students in all the universities, in particular the Islamic University and, and Al-Azhar. So he was quite an organizer. Um, we started a project together, which was named You Can Save a Life, where I trained medical students to be instructors so that they could train lay people in the communities in Gaza, life-saving first aid. So basically it was a way to, to uh, mobilize the medical student community to be instrumental in training lay people which was an eye-opener to many of them because they were mostly sitting in the auditorium and listening to some professors telling them about life and medicine. So going out and meeting people and, and training them hands-on how to open the airway, how to stop bleeding, how to keep the patient warm, how to give, give comfort and encouragement was extremely popular. So this project we had, it expanded, and um, the goal was that the medical students should train 10,000 lay people. And Maisara was one of our key organizers um, and in parallel with this you know all the organizational work that such a project needs to be um, uh, sort of uh, led that work has to be led uh, we also did research he was a brilliant researcher we published our research results in the lancet even and then he finished medical school with you know top uh, top grades and was accepted as a uh, as a student uh, or a candidate for um, for a master's in England, and he achieved this, you know, one of these scholarships, uh, achieving the scholarships, went to UK, uh, did a brilliant master, came back, I think that was a year ago, to continue his specialization as a as a pediatrician. He wanted to be a, a doctor for the kids in Gaza. My Sarah lived with his father and mother in central part of Gaza City in uh, Rimal. And um, one afternoon, evening, he, he, he came home to go to bed. His parents were there. They were all scared, of course, because of the bombing. And his two sisters were there. Um, and um, one of the sisters had uh, three small kids. They went to bed. And uh, during the night, the Israelis came and bombed uh, the family house. And um, all... Uh, uh, seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, eight, all eight disappeared, probably killed. 
the remaining two members of the family, my Sarah's two brothers, were out looking for bread, trying to find some food for the family, came back, found the family house completely in rubble and uh, started to dig with their bare hands. Uh, you know, no fuel for the digging machines, for the, you know, the, the, the diggers and the cranes and all you need to to lift away the, the bombed parts of a house. So they were digging with their hands, continued after sunbreak, sunrise. And uh, then the Israelis came back, as they very often do, and uh, shot drones and killed both the brothers too. And one neighbor who was helping them, and a journalist who was actually covering this story. So the whole Alarayas family, my Sarah included, are now vanished, killed in cold blood, civilians, unarmed. My Sarah was by no means a political no. activist. His father was a businessman, very diligent people, very lovable, uh, soft-spoken, and with this intense Palestinian hospitality that is so uh, so pregnant for people from Gaza. So that is one of the one, two, three, four, five that I have lost. And uh, I can only imagine what it means to, yeah, the 20,000, 25,000 who have um, been killed, their families, all the orphanated kids, all the pain and suffering for the 60,000 wounded. It is such an avalanche of human suffering that it is almost incomprehensible. And it's all done with full will, planning, dedication. It is a 100% man-made disaster designed to achieve exactly the goals that they have achieved to kill, to maim, and to dismantle and destroy Palestinian society. This is the the, the the politics of elimination of the settler colonial project of Israel, supported by the United States and unfortunately by most Western government, it is <clears throat> it's not a military struggle. It is way beyond. It's not a revenge alone. This is the the politics of elimination, known from colonial politics for generations. You know, we grab your land, we presume there is no people there, and if there is a people there, we kill them or chase them away. And then we destroy any sign of their story, their history, their culture, and, and perform the, the total epistemicide to, to erase any sign of a people. You know, so any Palestinian hospital, any Palestinian university, beautiful universities, any Palestinian mosque or church or kindergarten or, or primary healthcare station is a sign of a society that Israeli occupying forces and their government do not want to see because there shall be no signs of palestine left as they have flattened completely flattened as you as you know northern gaza including the hospitals and this is what the united states claims is israel acting in self-defense you know it's so ridiculous it, it it's so it's it's so transparently stupid it's so it's so false that, I mean, any child would look straight through it with very simple logic. How can you claim uh, to defend yourself if you're killing 12,000 children? What are you defending them? So, so I mean, this is, this is such a catastrophic um, demise, such a cat catastrophic um, failure of 
the whole Western morality, uh, that the whole the whole culture that we represent is sitting idle watching this massacre going on day after day, week after week, month after month. I did a little I did a little math here for another interview and um, you know currently the number of killed, wounded and missing in Gaza after these four months is about five percent of the population. Five percent of the population. Twelve thousand killed, twenty out no twenty eight thousand killed, sixty five thousand wounded, and uh, an unknown number missing. And then you have, in addition, a number which is not counted are all of those who have died from no access to healthcare with non communicable diseases, cancer, diabetes, infections, psych psychiatric disorders, uh, pregnancies going wrong, uh, stillbirth, uh, lots. Uh, thousands uh, who have been denied access to primary health care, for example. Um, the insulin cold chain has not been working, and, and Gaza has a very high prevalence of, of uh, diabetes, actually it's around 15.2%. Uh, thousands of, of juvenile, young, diabetic 1 patients who have not had, have had access to, to insulin, only that. But the number is so 5% missing, killed, or uh, wounded. If you sh should translate that to the United States um, population, it would mean 16.6 million U.S. citizens killed, wounded, or uh, missing after four months. 16.6 million. So, so given the fact that there are only 2.2 million Palestinians in Gaza, we have yet not talked about the West Bank, these numbers that are reported every second day by UN OSHA, every single Minister of Foreign Affairs in the Western world have the facts on the table. They have all the numbers. The health cluster meetings with WHO and all the NGOs make the graph. I have all these graphs day by day, week by week, number of killed, number of wounded, number of destroyed hospitals, uh, consequences for the supply of medicine, uh, medical machinery, blah, 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 blah. It's all known and they have not reacted. Had the Palestinian people not been non-white, but had been white, it would have been a completely different reaction. This is, a, this is such a shameful display of Western racism and Orientalism. And um, it, it makes me sick, actually. It really makes me sick. I have a hard time some days to get up in the morning because I know my WhatsApp uh, inbox is filled with new horrors from my colleagues, my friends, my families that I know. I mean, I have I have family friends in Gaza who are kids that I, I participated in the treatment of in during Operation Castled in 2009 uh, and kids that we treated in 2014. And... Um, these people have become my, my close friends because I've followed up the families. Like uh, Jumana Samouni here, who, who lost her father and who lost most of her uh, left hand in 2009 during the, the Saitun massacre. And I've been following her uh, through all the years. And when they call me now and say, Dr. Mats, Dr. Mats, please, can you help us to get out from Rafa? We need $7,000 per capita if we should have any chance to get out. 
and it, it goes on with little or no audible or at least no palpable political reaction from the governments of, of EU and Europe where I live, let alone the settler colonial states of the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. They're all patting the back of Israel in this enormous, enormous collapse of Western morality and uh, I don't know what to call it, uh, principles. Forget about human rights. Forget about the, the, the international community. Forget about any declaration from the UN. It's all falling apart. We're back to the yeah. jungle. Might gives you right. And Israel is the forerunner for this uh, degenerated belief that if you have might, you have right. I wanted to know what your thoughts were as a doctor on the letter that dozens of Israeli physicians signed urging the military to destroy the, quote, hornet nests and the hospitals shielding them, end quote, in Gaza. How do, how do you see something like that as someone who's dedicated yourself to, to medicine and to healing? I think there were actually a uh, hundred doctors signing that letter. And, um, <laughs> you know, uh, when, I, when I saw it first, I was in Egypt then trying to get in. And I saw it on the news and I, I cited and I said, oh, yeah, right, because I misread. I thought the petition was not to bomb the hospitals. And then I, I reread it and I didn't believe it first. And then, I mean, if you, if you look at the rabbis who are in the Israeli occupation forces, they say kill them all. Cut the head of the snake. Kill the snake babies. They are going to get snakes, be sna become snakes. I, I studied this quite deeply after the 2009 attack when we wrote the book Ice in Gaza. And I actually have a chapter on the, the teaching of the rabbis and, and the military universities in Israel. This is part of, of the political movement of Zionism. This is part of the deep-rooted racism. Kill them all. And if there's a hospital that treats them, they will live longer, so bomb it. And of course, it's in complete and utter contradiction to any ethical oath that we take in medical school before we start. We are on the side of life, regardless. I, I, I don't practice, practice a humanitarian medicine. I practice solidarity medicine, which means I side up with the people who struggle. But that does not mean that I am not neutral. Of course, I'm neutral in every one of my one-to-one -one patient relations. If I was working in Shifa during Israeli bombing and we happened to, to get in an Israeli injured soldier, I would give him or her exactly the same treatment as I would give a Palestinian child. That's not the point. My choice is before that. I choose to go to Gaza and not to Israel because I support the Palestinian people and their right to resist occupation with arms. But that said, of course, to, to, to argue that an army should bomb hospitals, it is to put yourself completely outside of the community of medicine. The ethics, the history of medicine, uh, the traditions that we practice within. And um, had you done something like that in Norway, you, you would have been complicit. You would probably be, be taken to court. And these people should be taken to court. Because not only is it a sort of a crazy point of view, but it is undermining the, the value base of everything we believe in. And if the West, the West, whatever that is, if they are not taking these threats seriously, 
I mean, if the if the U.S. if the American Medical Association is not standing up and saying this has to stop, and tell the Israeli Medical Association that you should actually expel these members, then where are we going? You know, if this becomes mainstream, I don't know. The whole idea about the Geneva Convention was from the start that even if you have an armed conflict, there should be some rules to avoid that civilians and unprotected and unarmed people are not getting in the in the in the killing zone or not attacked. So you have the principle of proportion, proportionality, distinction. So you should use the same amount of weapon force as the as your contestant, your your enemy. Uh, precaution is that if a, if a target is mixed, if a target is civilian, you cannot. Uh, no, if a, if a target is mixed civilian military, like a mosque with thousand people and two fighters, you cannot bomb that mosque just because you want to obtain a military advancement with the killing the two. And uh, and uh, distinction is, of course, that you are obliged to make a clear distinction between civilian and mil military targets, objects. You're not allowed to bomb hospital, even if there should be a tunnel. And that and that's the stunning thing. You know, all the Western politicians, they should know their textbook. They should know their, their, their Geneva Convention. Most of us who are working internationally, we know it. We know what the rules are. And, and all these stupid allegations about the uh, hospitals being used as command center, blah, blah, never been proven. And for the Israelis, who fucking cares? They don't care. They bombed the Turkish Friendship Hospital, the cancer hospital. They had absolutely no claims that there was anything military about it. They bombed it with 67 cancer patients inside. And Dr. Sobiskeik, the leader, the medical director, and I guess it was 16 patients who had been evacuated from Shifa to unload Shifa, trauma patients from the bombing. They started shelling in the morning. They destroyed the whole upper floor, the anesthesia floor. All these, you know, pretty weak cancer patients and their staff had to be evacuated to a much smaller hospital nearby. And at that moment, all cancer therapy ceased to function in Gaza. And there is about between 1,000 and 2,000 cancer patients who are not getting their treatment. Can you imagine? And that is, that is you know, just even standard, uh, uh, you know, IV uh, cytostatics, let alone radiation therapy, which Gaza never had because of the medical apartheid, which is another story. But, but they bombed hospitals regardless. They bombed the Al-Akhli Arab, the Baptist hospital, you know, the big bomb. And then it was a big discussion. Oh, it might have been, a, you know, a, a, a failed rocket from, from the Palestinians. Way beyond the point. Had there been no occupation, had there been no siege, there wouldn't have been any rockets at all. So, so this is a historical low point in human history where the most vulnerable, the most unarmed, the most naked part of a civilian population, the children, the women, the newborn, the sick, the wounded, are getting targeted by a viciously uh, well-organized and strong army who has every method of killing available in the world today and the support of the United States and unfortunately EU to let them loose like a, like a, like a horde of pit bulls 
which not only are pit bulls, but have contained the contracted rabies at the same time. And then try to say, no, 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 please don't do that, you know. And um, history will tell. But this has been taking place in full daylight. Even if they had killed now, I think it's 120 journalists and they have not allowed any foreign journalists in unless they have been embedded in the Israeli army, which of course no decent journalist will do. They have uh, denied those of us who are critical healthcare workers, who have knowledge and who have, you know, academic uh, competency to, to say something about the situation because we've been doing research. We are not allowed in. And those few teams who are allowed in via coordination from WHO are all, every single team member is wetted by the Israeli army. Nobody gets into any team, be it Doctors Without Borders or WHO or whoever, if the Israelis have not checked your name and said, okay. I, not allowed because my name was on the list of the team, not. So then the team had to decide to have me on the team or to expel me. So none of the critical voices or the critical observers from the international community have been allowed in, along with none of the needed medical material or, or drugs. I don't know if you know it, but the, uh, the main hub for the relief coming through uh, Egypt uh, to Rafah is passing through the small coastal town of El Arish, which is on the, the shore of the Mediterranean, a few 15, 25 kilometers south, no, 30 kilometers south of, uh, of Gaza. They, have, they cannot drive straight up to Rafah to go into Gaza. They have to drive eastwards all the way to Khmer Shalom, yeah. which is the Israeli point. And there, the Israeli army goes through every box, every item, of relief and they take out what they don't want the Palestinians to have. They claim it is sort of, uh, it's called uh, uh, dual no, use. Dual use, exactly, dual use. Yeah. And you know, they take out all anesthetic drugs. Which means, sorry, du dual use for potential militant activity. This could be used, but it too, yeah, yeah. So sorry, they take out anesthetics like, like morphine, for example. And not only morphine, fentanyl, ketamine, all these important tools that we have to, to do field anesthesia in crisis and, and disastrous situations. I'm an anesthesiologist. I, I know the need for these drugs. Um, and basically anything in life can be called dual use. Water is dual use. Diapers yeah. uh, are dual, dual use. You know, whatever. So they pick out, and, and, um, and this is so mean, and, and they take out all the um, surgical equipment needed for stabilization of fractures, which is, this is called external fixators, which are metal bars that you drill in, and then you can do uh, a fixation without using the old-fashioned uh, uh, plaster of Paris. Take it out. Take out the, the third generation, fourth generation antibiotics, which is badly needed because 100% of the wounds are infected, and many of them with multi-resistant bacteria. I've, I've, I've been discussing and, and, and been engaged in treatment of kids with wounds who have died from septicemia because the hospital did not have that fourth generation of antibiotics, which was needed to kill that bacteria. This is beyond any defensible tactical reasoning.
This is sadism. This is pure evil sadism. This is to inflict as much pain as possible, to discourage the Palestinian people and the youth in particular to ever think about staying in Gaza, I think. Uh, Edward Said said in 2002 that, in a quote that I have in one of my lectures, Edward Said said, uh, I know of no other nation who, with such detailed sadism, have been um, have been plaguing a whole people uh, in full uh, in full light of the of the spotlights in the evening news as the Israeli uh, army uh, has been able to do against the Palestinians. He, he, he names the sadism as part of the way that the Israelis have been and are treating the Palestinian people. How is water dual use? Because if you don't, if you have water, you can continue to fight. If you don't have water, you you get thirsty and you can't fight. I mean, food is dual use. Medicines, you know, drugs, whatever is dual use. Uh, uh, there is a story from uh, during the Second Intifada, I think, uh, when John Kerry was your Minister of Foreign Affairs. And he came to the to Karni, which was uh, a northern entry point for trucks uh, before they closed it down. The Israelis. This was on, in the early uh, years of um, it, no, it was not Intifada. It was after two thousand and seven, during the siege. Nine, I think, eight or nine. And he was inspecting a long lineup of trucks going into Gaza. And and the, they were lifting, you know, the, the the cover, and and there was one truck with spaghetti. And they were denying it entry. And, and John Kerry said, why on earth to his Israeli hosts, why on earth can't they have spaghetti in Gaza? They can't make rockets from spaghetti. And then the, they explained to him that spaghetti was on the A-list of items that, Israel, that the Palestinians should not have, luxury goods, because they're not going to have a good time. And Kerry was very upset and said, for heaven's sake, they will have this spaghetti truck. And then they had to comply. After all, it was Big Brother. And then what they did was they moved, since they moved spaghetti from the A to the B list, can have, but to have the balance, they moved then jam from the B list to the A list. You know? you, it, it's so, it, you know, it's so detailed that you have a hard time believing it, but the number of calories are counted, yeah. you know, and just to keep them under the starvation limit. Yeah. So there are lots of studies, scientific studies, showing stunting, that you're more than two standard deviations shorter than you should be at your age, anemia, lots of problems for the for the up, up, you know for kids and, and uh, adolescents. And this has been known for years. And now what you're doing now is that they starve this population who was already hungry when this attack started. So um I wonder what history will will say, but I think it will be judged with with great uh, yeah hardship. Just to show how feckless the Biden administration is, so mm -hmm. Kerry's predecessor, current predecessor, Antony Blinken, he wanted to do recently a photo op at the border crossing to show that aid is getting in to Gaza, but he had to cancel it because Israelis are currently blockading aid trucks going into Gaza. And the Israeli government won't remove them. 
So Blinken couldn't even do his photo op because the Israeli government won't even grant him the courtesy of removing protesters, blocking aid, getting into Gaza. So they wouldn't even give him his face-saving photo op. Exactly. No, no, that's uh, that's well known that they are coming in, in their cars and in particular settlers and many of them who come to Khmer Shalom where this this blockade have, have been taken place are actually settlers from the U.S. Uh, and they block the convoy of the few trucks that are allowed by the occupiers, the Israelis, to, to, to get into Gaza. And I, I guess you know that before this attack, the daily average of trucks needed to sustain life in Gaza was around 500 per day, including fuel trucks, 500 per day. And they would come through, uh, in particular, through Khmer uh, Shalom, which is a sort of a truck size control post where you can scan the, the trailers. Uh, Rafa is really not designed for, for truck inlets. And, uh, and before, as I said, it would come through Karni, and some few will come through Eres in the north. 500 per day. And then the uh, attack came and the Israelis pronounced there would be absolutely nothing. They turned off the electricity. They turned off the water pipelines. There are some main supplying water pipelines into Gaza. They turned on, uh, turned off the fuel supply, the food supply. And there was basically no trucks getting in. And then it has been a little bit, you know, fluctuating. But it has never reached more than maximum an average of 100 per day. That is one-fifth of what was needed before they started bombing. And you can just imagine the increased need for supplies when you are taking out the fisheries, the bakeries, the, the flour mills, the, the agriculture, everything that was supplying the food basket for the Palestinians made by themselves. And then they don't allow more than 100 per day. And of course, uh, I just heard from the Minister of Health that I think up to 70% of the medical supplies that were coming in with the trucks were absolutely useless. It would be old COVID-19 stuff. It would be, you know, just sort of garbage. The only ones who have actually provided uh, pretty much what the Palestinians have been asking for are the uh, Jordanians, who are the only ones, by the way, who at state level have dared to challenge the Israelis with the airdrops I don't know if you heard about that, but the the uh, Jordanian Air Force, headed actually by King Abdullah himself, uh, did a daredevilish airdrop without coordinating with the Israelis. They informed both parties, but they flew in and they dropped with um, GPS-guided parachutes, which they can use drones to adjust uh, the, the target point. And they dropped the supplies to their two, they have two field hospitals, the Jordanians, one in the north and one in the south. And they have repeated it a number of times. And um, the Hashemite court with uh, King Abdullah and, and, and Queen Rania have been very proactive. And I don't know if you saw his speech next to Biden uh, the other day, where he was extremely outspoken. Uh, and actually, King Abdullah was more outspoken against Israel than any European leader have been uh, so far until Cameron, uh, you know, David Cameron came on, was it yesterday, saying that blah, blah. Uh, the Irish and the Spanish Minister of Foreign Affairs are coming on and, and, and sort of demanding uh, that Israel is stopped. 
but um, the Jordanian have been very outspoken and they have been breaking the siege. And my question is, this siege has been going on for the better part of 16 years. And, and it has been allowed. It's a massive collective punishment, totally illegal, according to international law. And it has had disastrous consequences for the living conditions. You know, there are tons of reports, World Bank reports, all the, um, all the uh, human rights organizations have reported, the UN bodies have reported, lots of science. There's a whole body on, of science on this. And as I said, uh, malnutrition causes uh, anemia and slow growth. It impedes your cognitive development. Uh, the poverty rate exceeding 50%, uh, unemployment rate highest in the world among the young people in Gaza, up to 60% employment rate, massive de destruction of the, um, the production life in Gaza. They are very industrious people. They used to produce, you know, agriculture stuff. Tomatoes are the best in the Middle East. Um, they produce strawberries and oranges, of course and fisheries, um, all of that has been affected by the siege to marginalize and to, to suffocate the whole population of Gaza. And then comes this on top. Can you talk about the effect of shutting off water on people's medical treatment? Yeah. Without water, you die, full stop. Without clean water, you get infected. And when you get infected, you lose more water from the body because you get vomit and diarrhea. So it's a very vicious circle, very bad circle, uh, repetitive circle. And the smaller your body is, the more sensitive you are to the loss of water from your body, like kids. And kids, when they get diarrhea and vomit, they lose their uh, water in the body very quickly and their fluid balance becomes negative. They, they stop producing urine and they go into uh, a lethargic state, and uh, finally you die. So the lack of clean water is a huge medical problem. If we are going to define what are the most important uh, provisions for good uh, public health, it's not the healthcare system. It's not like we have here in my city in, in Tromsø, ambulance helicopters and fancy big uh, university hospitals and open heart surgery and ECMO and all that. No, the basic preconditions for public health are very simple. It's water, it's food, it's human security. It is somewhere to live at home. It's work, paid work, safe work. It's education. And then comes the healthcare system. So if you don't have water, food, security, you cannot achieve public health. So water is both in a long-term perspective and in a very short day-by-day -day perspective, a precondition not only for life, but for health. So the situation with this dehydration going on in Gaza, also man-made, has caused massive problems for healthcare because they didn't have clean water to to wash hands. And very quickly, the, the staff, among other hospitals in Shifa, they, all the staff got infected. They had fever, all of them, uh, during October, November. And they had massive gastrointestinal in, infections because the toilets did not have water to flush and, and they didn't have clean water to wash their hands. So the fecal oral contamination route became, you know, uh, 
massively prevalent, to put it that way. So that is the hygiene side of it. Then for the for the personal hygiene, to wash and to to keep cleanliness and to avoid to infect your your own body with the with the bacteria that are in your feces, simply. And then it's of course your daily need of uh, one to two liters of clean water, just to maintain your fluid balance. If you are forced to drink unclean water, it will have at least two effects. Number one, you drink less because you don't want to drink that water, so you more easily get dehydrated, and you get sick from that contaminated water, of course. Well, you could boil it, yeah, but then you need a pot and you need a stove and you need fire firewood or you need gas, none of which is available. And then you have the problem with, uh, with of course, um, uh, water to, uh, to treat the really sick and wounded ones, which we, you know, the IV fluids that you need, which are to be sterile because we put it straight in the vein because these patients can't drink. And if you don't have that, they also die. And uh, uh, Dr. Yusuf Abrish, the Minister of Health, and my good friend and very respected leader, he's a pediatrician himself, he's a fantastic guy. He's been the Minister of Health in Gaza for uh, the last uh, 12, 14 years, I think. He's, he's uh, quite young. And he is one of my absolute most esteemed role, role models. Uh, he said the triangle of uh, death currently in Gaza, it is uh, the lack uh, of food, it is the lack of water, and it is disease. So he called that the, tri the triangle of death. The malnutrition or starvation because of, of the um, Israeli-imposed siege of Gaza and lack of food, uh, the lack of water uh, because of the closure of the water pipelines with the dehydration and then all the diseases, not the war wounds, not the amputations, not the shrapnel wounds, but ordinary non-communicable diseases, as I mentioned, diabetes, cancer, uh, pregnancies with problems, uh, psychiatric disorders, um, uh, hypertension, myocardial infarction, stroke, all of that, which is normally, you know, happening in a, in a population, have not had access to healthcare because I think it's now 53 or 54 primary healthcare clinics that has always also been, been closed down or damaged. And because of the lack of foreign eyes and because of the lack of foreign journalists and because of the lack of of, of uh, medical staff with experience from Gaza and with white skin, blue eyes and, and blonde hair who can be trustworthy, none of this, almost none of this is coming out or at least believed. And you all remember how, how Biden and, and of course the Israelis said that the Palestinians can't even count, their numbers are wrong. At such a, a degrading part of Orientalism, and, and somebody said, I guess the Palestinians are the only people on earth who have to prove their own death. In fact, there was a very important study uh, published in The Lancet in uh, December by two, I believe it was two British epidemiologists showing that the Palestinian Minister of Health numbers of killed Palestinians are systematically below the numbers reported by the United Nations.
And I, I'm a professor of medicine. I've done a lot of research in Gaza and I've used these numbers. So, of course, as a, a researcher and a scientist, I have been exploring how do you collect these numbers? And they allowed me insight. And there is a, an office in, in Shifa, used to be, where there was uh, uh, six or eight computers where people were sitting and every morning and every afternoon, they called around to all the hospitals, got the names, date of birth, place of death, type of death for everyone that had been killed. If they didn't have the full uh, information, they would not count that one. They would put a question mark and, and do further uh, exploration. And these numbers were reported to the uh, statistical department in the Ministry of Health morning and afternoon, and they were sent to, um, you know, to WHO, to Orcha, to foreign ministries. And they have always been relied on. Even the U.S. State Department used these numbers. The Palestinians are the most educated people in the Middle East. They have a very high rate of academic uh, training. They are brilliant researchers. They don't fake anything. Why should they? You know, and then come this comes these claims that you know the numbers are not right. I'm I'm 100% sure that the numbers that we get through the uh, through the Orcha report, the flash updates are uh, are correct actually. And if anything, they are underestimating the number of uh, of killed and wounded. Yeah, Dr. Gilbert. Um, you know, I feel somewhat. Um compromised or inhumane whenever I, I raise Israeli allegations uh, like the Hamas command complex under al-Shifa or UNRWA being compromised because some staffers allegedly took part in October 7th, because it's so obvious that these are lies being used to justify what's happening in mm-hmm. front of our eyes, this genocide. But because of your personal experience, I do want to ask you to respond to them. You've worked at al-Shifa, and I'm curious, you know, what your thoughts were when Israel unveiled this allegation that there was a Hamas command complex underneath the U S media widely parroted Israel's claims long after the fact it's been acknowledged, of course, that this was a lie, but after the damage was done because Shifa was attacked. Um, I'm curious, first of all, did any U S journalists contact you, you know, to comment on this based on your experience there? And also I'm wondering your comments on Israel's allegations against UNRWA and the, suspension of funding and, and you mentioned how palestinians are so highly educated right. unra plays a major role in that mm. yeah uh i think the question about shifa and command center and hamas has been the question i've been asked most frequently over the last four months and i've given on an average i think two to three to four interviews per day in particular, the uh, the three and a half month I was in in Egypt and Jordan, uh, not so much to the Western media, but to the Arab media. So I was on Al Jazeera today, uh, live <laughs> on Al Jazeera Arabic. So uh, an Egyptian TV wanted me on now, and uh, I had to decline it because we had this appointment. So this question has been asked over and over and over and over again. And I can answer as I've been answering all the time. This is nothing new. Just like the Israeli attacks on healthcare and hospitals is nothing new. If you know the history and you know the pattern of, uh, of attacks and propaganda from the Israelis. We have heard since 2006 
these claims that Shifa was a uh, command and uh, key military center for the uh, Israeli resistance, uh, the Palestinian resistance. I have myself experienced twice, both in 2009 during the Operation Cast Lead and during the attack in 2014, working in Shifa. We were actually called by our Minister of Foreign Affairs, the Norwegian Ministry yeah. of Foreign Affairs, and told that we had to be evacuated immediately. Why? Because the Israelis were going to bomb Shifa. Why? Because there was a military command and, and, and control center under Shifa. Uh, and there would be an escort, uh, a convoy. The Israelis would make a lull in the bombing and we would be safely escorted out actually in the armored car of the UNRWA boss uh, to the border and not, not border, but to the fence and in Eres. And then we would be taken to, to uh, Ben-Gurion airport by the Norwegian embassy people and then flown home. And of course, both times we said, no, we stayed. And every time there is an attack on, on Gaza, they have come up with the same claims. But till this day, they have not been able to put forward one single proof, despite they've had 17 years to find out. And with their intelligence system and their x-raying of the whole of Gaza and their whatever, uh, you know, uh, spyware up and down, there has been no proof. So this is just uh, an excuse to attack what is the flagship of Palestinian healthcare, not only in Gaza, but also in the West Bank. Shifa Medical Complex is a high standard university hospital, which has a key role to play in the education of Palestinian healthcare workers and specialists, and incredibly important for the population of Gaza. So that's one part of my answer. Uh, they have been claiming this for 16, 17 years uh, without any proof. Number two, I have been working in Shifa. Uh, I've been to Shifa every year, two, three times a year, when I go to Gaza to teach, to do research, or to work there during Israeli attacks. I have never had any restrictions whatsoever. I can go wherever I want. I can open any door I want to open. I can film, I can interview, I can talk to people. I've, I've experienced absolutely zero, zero limitations as to where I move and what I do in Shifa. And I'm a restless guy, so I'm pretty much high and low. And I've taken oh, thousands of pictures, interviewed people, taken, you know, taken down patient case stories and so on and so forth. I have never been controlled. I've never been controlled. Actually, when I've been writing these two books, this is uh, The Night in Gaza in, in Norwegian, and it's also in English. I had the, uh, I took every picture, I've taken 95% of the pictures myself. Every picture has been uh, looked at and signed on by the family, the patient, the, the uh, head of the Shifa hospital, and uh, if needed, the Minister of Health. That is not because of the security, but because of the patient rights and the ethics of of you know uh, making uh, the patient confidentiality a part of what they can decide themselves if they want to if they want the picture in the book or not. So I've taken so many pictures. I've been all over. I've never seen any high-ranking Hamas official or Fatah official or Shihad official. Official. The only official person from the civilian branch of the uh, de facto government Hamas has been the Minister of Health, and he should be there. 
He's a civilian. That's part of his leadership. Otherwise, I've never seen it. And I have only a very few times seen wounded fighters coming in. A handful, maybe four or five times over all these years. They have their own medical system. So the second part of my, my reply is no, I have never seen it. And um, I don't know of anybody else who has seen it. I comply with the Geneva Convention. If I had any information of uh, Shifa or uh, Al-Quds Hospital, the Red Crescent Hospital, or any other hospital or an ambulance being used for military purposes, I would have left. Full stop. I wouldn't have participated. And these these questions are discussed. I mean, the Palestinian healthcare workers and the doctors, they are sophisticated. They discuss politics. They discuss international law. They discuss the ethics of medicine. They are at a level, because they have this vast experience of working under hardship, they are way beyond the average level of, of, of ethical reflection and decision-making in difficult decisions than compared to, to, with all due respect to my colleagues here, because we live in peace and have an easy life. And they would not have accepted that Shifa was used for any double purpose or being military abused. Because, you know, at the end of the day, the constituency of, of, of doctors and nurses in Shifa reflects the people of Gaza. There are Christians, there are Muslims, there are Fatah people, there are Hamas people, there are Shihad people, there are non-political people. All walks of life, of political life, are represented in the staff among the thousands of healthcare workers. They would not have accepted that this was being abused uh, for some military uh, purpose. And then the last point, where are the proofs? Where is the smoking gun? You've all seen the ridiculous uh, videos when the Israelis uh, attacked Shifa attacked Shifa and had some shamefully uh, embedded BBC and I believe it was uh, uh, Fox News journalist. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what did they find? Nothing. They planted a few Kalashnikovs. Whenever did the Palestinians use Kalashnikovs? That's way back in 82, 83 and maybe during the Intifada. Have you seen their rifles now? Highly sophisticated, you know, uh, state-of-the-art rifles. And they put some old uniforms and then they started to smash the MRI machines and all the other machinery. What, 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 what a savagery. What, 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 a, what an embarrassing, low point in human uh, behavior to start attacking medical equipment. And then they went down and found this room with this, here you can see the Hamas <clears throat> name and, the, and, the, and, and the, their call schedule. No, it was a calendar. Right. And then when they when they opened the uh, Rantissi and the Nasser uh, pediatric hospitals, it was like, look here, there are diapers. Yes, maybe not so strange that you have a storage room for diapers in a pediatric hospital. So at the end of the day, nothing has been proven. And then there is this old tunnel system, which was built by the Israelis when they were in control of Shifa. And then the most important, my fourth point is that any modern hospital, wherever, if you go to a hospital in Chicago or in New York or in Tromsø or in Oslo, all modern hospitals have tunnels underneath mm. because they connect the different buildings. So you don't have to take patients out in the open air. They connect all the technical systems, you know, like the oxygen system, the fuel system, the, the warm water, the, the heated water for heating and so, so there is always there is always a tunnel system under a modern hospital. That's the way the 
architecture is laid out because uh, most of, uh, or if not all uh, technical functions are located underground. And that also has a security point, of course. So the backup electricity systems, the unbreakable power supplies. My hospital here in Tromsø are pretty new. It has a network of tunnels underneath. So come on, come on, come on, please bomb us. We have, we have tunnels under our hospital. The point is, Israelis have not been able to prove any single ship to uh, to uh, to to make any kind of case with regards to an argument to bomb Shifa Hospital or any other hospital. And then comes the most important point: even if it was, the Geneva Convention prohibits a bombing of a mixed civilian military target. You know that's the combination of precaution and distinction. The precaution is that if a target is suspected to be combined military and civilian, the civilian protection takes priority over the military uh, win. Now, you constantly hear people say, um, what are they supposed to do? As if there aren't clear guidelines about what you're what it's supposed to do. As, as if they're reinventing the wheel here. This rhetorical question, suggesting that Israel has no option but to do this. When, as you've been pointing out, it's hmm. very clear what you do and you don't bomb. Of course. Of course you don't bomb. It's a no-brainer. Of, of course, even. Come on. Why, where do you treat the, the, the wounded U.S. soldiers from Afghanistan and from Iraq or from any of your colonial, not yours, but for any U.S. colonial adventure? You treat them in hospitals, don't you? Does that give anybody the right from Canada to start to bomb your hospitals? Of course a soldier has the right. In, also in accordance with international law, to have proper treatment. I mean, it's, it's, like, it's like a nightmare, the way they're reasoning. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and it's like a, a complete Kafka circle. Regardless of how you argue, you always end up with the Israelis' right to bomb, to kill, to destroy. That is at the core, this toxic combination of the colonial settler occupying project with the deep racism and the praxis of racism in an apartheid system. Anything is allowed. And the turning, the, 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 the most disturbing question for me is that how can we write 2024 and allow an armed Western unit killing 12,000 children? How on earth is that possible? without being completely morally degenerated. Because the only thing you have in sight is colonial power and ruling others. And that, in my view, may be the reflex explaining why the European governments, by and large, except for Ireland and Norway and Iceland, US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, with such power, during the first weeks and months of this attack, supported Israel. Because at the end of the day, they are all colonial powers who remember their colonial adventures. And, and this is the new neo-colonialism time we're entering, the era of neo-colonialism, where indeed power defines rights. And indeed, where NATO and the United States are uh, maybe looking for more global control uh, in uh, confrontation with BRIC and, and China and, um, and Russia. 
so that's if you zoom out that's the larger uh, picture where israel is uh, is a useful uh, uh, a useful thug a thug of war that is useful a bat for the um, colonial powers and and lastly, if you could just talk about what's happening right now in Rafa and what predictions you have. Well, what's going on now is uh, it's beyond nightmarish. Uh, this is the I, I just read through the um, the uh, uh, Republic of South Africa's uh, uh, second uh, appeal to the International Court of Justice, where they're asking the Court of Justice. Uh, which is the highest court we have in the world, UN uh, International Court of Just Justice. They call for more action to stop Israel's um, Israel's attacks on people in Rafah. And uh, they quote a large number of, of sources, um, expressions used like, it will cause a humanitarian nightmare. It's be at a, a massacre of unparalleled scale, which is looming in the horizon. Um, these are from the heads of uh, WHO, from the heads of, uh, of, from the Secretary General of UN, and so on. And they are asking now; they're actually begging the International uh, Court of Justice to to take action to stop Israel. What they're doing in Rafah. Um, I think the Israeli army and the government are pretty desperate to show some results. They have, they say, they have freed two hostages. Even that is doubted. They have been seen as freed before. I saw uh, in some newsreels. Um, otherwise, all the other hostages, hostages who have been freed, have been uh, when there has been a deal, an exchange. Exactly. Uh, the uh, Palestinian resistance is capable of, uh, of firing rockets still from the north and from the middle of Gaza. Uh, there is still fierce fighting, uh, and um, there is no doubt that uh, Netanyahu uh, has not achieved the military goals at all. Uh, and now, uh, of course, this feared idea that we've all been fearing that Israel wants to push uh, 2.2 million Palestinians into the Sinai desert. Uh, they have partially managed to squeeze them, you know, 1.2, 1.3 million in Rafah, which is a nightmare by itself. But then um, this bombing um, is, of course, um, it, it's beyond words that you bomb uh, displaced, forcefully displaced people, families with lots of children who are in, in tents. And these are summer tents, not winter tents. So the the texture will be like two, three millimeter. And then you use modern bombs to hit these tents, as we have seen from Rafa. They have, oh, last night they bombed a few, uh, quite a large number. And if there is a, a ground invasion in, in Rafa, it's, it's, I, I, I have no words. It has to be stopped, either by the president of Mexico, as uh, your eminent Biden called the president of <laughs> the other day. Uh, or now, today, Cameron came out, the Minister of Foreign Affairs in England. Then the Irish and the Spanish Minister of Foreign Affairs are coming out. Norway has been pretty strong all the time. We did not uh, comply with, uh, with the screams of defunding UNRWA. Mm, I didn't answer that question, by the way. And Norway has been um, taking a position which is maybe because we're not a member of EU, but of course we who are uh, 
pro-Palestinians in Norway, we don't think the Norwegian government is doing enough, but they're doing far more than any other uh, European government, except for, as I said, Iceland and uh, Ireland. Uh, maybe because we have been colonized, maybe because we have been uh, occupied for hundreds of years, all these three nations, maybe because we are small, independent nations, pretty much the same size as the Palestine. But most of all, maybe because we've had a, a long-standing history of uh, very active solidarity groups who have actually educated the people uh, by sending young people, sending healthcare personnel, sending UN soldiers, uh, peacekeeping forces. So there has been a massive uh exodus of norwegians going to to lebanon to the to the camps to uh gaza and to uh to the west bank for 40 years and coming back with their personal narrative and story what they saw and it is said that 99 percent of the norwegian unifield forces the un forces went to lebanon and to gaza pro-israeli and 95 no 90 and 100 percent came back pro-palestinian because the strongest argument, and I always tell people, if don't listen to me, don't believe a word of what I'm saying, go and see for yourself. Spend a week in the West Bank and come back and then we can discuss. And they all come back and say, my God, I didn't believe it was that bad. Well, Dr. Gilbert, you haven't just gone to visit, you've gone to volunteer your services as a doctor multiple times, uh, putting yourself in life-threatening positions to help save the lives of others. And we're really appreciative of all the work you do and for you sharing some time with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, yeah. And one final word, we can all do more. And um, one old Palestinian doctor said to me, and I, I guess more people have said it, what you are doing now or what you are not doing now is what you would have done or not done during Holocaust. Yeah. And he also added, the future is bright for Palestine. We have won, Israel has lost. It will cost more blood, but we are injecting the blood of the martyrs into the veins of victory. Mm. That's the Palestinian perspective. They're mm. patient. They are long, uh, looking for the long perspective, but they know they're right, and they know they will have uh, a free Palestine at the end of the day, and that's my driving force too. So I hope everyone will do more. We can all do our part. Write a poem, sing a song, participate in a demonstration, write a letter to your politician, travel to uh, to Palestine or to West Bank or to Lebanon, take part in history because we need to change history now. Shukran. Very thankful to Dr. Mads Gilbert for joining us and sharing his insight into the assault on Gaza and its healthcare system, which he's very intimately familiar with, having spent so many years volunteering there. Yeah, thank you so much, doctor, for all that you do for talking to us, but also all you do for the world. It's so important and inspiring and um, also heartbreaking. It's hard to listen to, but that's, that's the least we can do. And if you're on the platform formerly known as Twitter, you can follow him at Dr. Mads Gilbert because his uh, tweets are really important. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to Useful Idiots. Usefulidiotspodcast.com is our website. Go there to support the show and get bonus content. And we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For extended episodes, bonus content, and our weekly Thursday Throwdown episode, please subscribe at usefulidiotspodcast.com. Support the show for free by subscribing on YouTube, Rumble, and wherever you get your podcasts. 
And if you like the podcast, don't forget to rate and review. You can also follow us on Twitter at UsefulIdiotPod. Thanks for supporting independent media. We'll see you next time.